Hello, welcome to Critical Myth Theory. My name is Joel. My name is Alex. Let's get into it. Alright, so today we're going to be talking about J.R.R. Tolkien, um, The Lord of the Rings in particular, but uh, a little bit of The Hobbit as well. Yeah, I can't really get into it too much without referencing The Hobbit at least yeah. once. No, absolutely. And we'll be uh, talking about uh, this in three points, as usual. Um, the inspiration uh, for why Tolkien wrote what he wrote, uh, his impact today, uh, and the themes in, uh, in these stories, which... Um, there are a fair few of them, and I suspect on this third point, we're going to have all kinds of sub-points and so much stuff to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. Sure. Yeah, for sure. We're not going to spend too much time on the first two points. Um, a lot of this stuff is pretty general knowledge. Um, some of you may even come across this stuff as, as what you've heard before. So, um, again, the themes are going to be really the meat of what we're going to be getting into today. Um, but yeah, like I said, we can kind of get into the first two points. Um, so yeah, let's kind of talk about uh, for why Tolkien kind of wrote what he wrote. So, do you know a bit of the background as to some of the inspirations, at least, of what Tolkien had? i got to be quite honest, I don't, but based on what you told me, it was a lot of Norse mythology and Greek mythology that you were talking about. I think those were the two? Kind of, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of Norse mythology, um, the Inklings were very much influenced by older stories um, in particular. So, the Inklings is kind of a group of writers that Tolkien was uh, a part of, the one of the founding members of, um, in his... Uh, in his youth, he had uh, come across these other like-minded individuals who uh, wrote, and they were very critical of each other's writings. Um, the other one that is more famous, or sorry, almost just as famously known, but more so than the others, would be C.S. Lewis, as part of the Inklings. Um, so they were, yeah, they would often get into writing, and they would write their own stuff and critique it very often. Um, a lot of what Tolkien did as a start starting point was he was a philologist so he dealt with a lot of languages right um and so he was very very interested in making his own and that's when he came across elvish um and i think the reason that, uh, that he started kind of writing the story itself was because he realized oh i have this language it needs to have more to it, it needs to be reasons where does this language come from what is it who spoke it and suddenly he started creating a new world, uh, which he eventually coined as Middle-earth, and is now the world that we know today, um, in, in, in Tolkien's writings. Um, so that's kind of a bit of that background. Uh, but it's interesting because, yeah, we see Norse mythology as a big influence on him, because before Tolkien, and this is kind of get into the second point a little bit, but um, so I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself here, but before Tolkien, um, any reference to elves or the dwarves, or as they were called at that point in time, were actually elves and dwarfs, um, was typically... Sorry, come again? Elves and dwarves? Dwarfs. So, oh, dwarfs. Yeah, so, so the way that they were, yeah, so the way that they were spelt before Tolkien came along would have been pluralized, would have just been add an S at the end of the word dwarf or elf. Huh. Um, and then Tolkien came along and kind of changed that and said, no, I like it how it, how it translates better as V-E for both of them, so... Um, Anglicize it a little yeah, bit. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess as a philologist, he decided to take that on himself, and as authority, he could do that, apparently. And so that's how he got it today. Um, but yeah, like, any sort of reference to elves previously would have been, you know, a Celtic folklore or uh, Norse folklore. Norse mythology. Um, right, you get the dark elves in Norse mythology, and you get... Um, now, typically, they were very different than what Tolkien wrote about, but you can see the influence of the dwarves and the elves in the original of uh, the Norse mythology writings. Um, actually, in fact, 
so the whole character storyline of for example the hobbit right where we have smaug kind of coming in and taking over um the mountain the king of the mountain who became too greedy is actually a theme he pulled out of um from one of the norse mythologies of fafnir um fafnir was this basically this dwarf who became so corrupted by this this uh gift that he had from loki um and eventually it turned him into a dragon <laughs> and he was a dwarf right it was kind of this interesting uh yeah, when you just kind of read the story of Fafnir, you're like, this is very familiar to, to what Tolkien wrote in The Hobbit. In that sense, like, you can definitely see the influence there. Um, but anyways, to kind of go beyond that, um, some of his themes were kind of, yeah, this we see the theme of, of punishing greed, but at the same time, um, one of the bigger influences on Tolkien as well was his faith. Uh, he was a devout Catholic, who we then see a lot of Christian sub-themes in his writings as well. Um and yeah you can even in his world building if you were to read the similarian which Cimmerillion, sorry slip of the tongue um he uh he gets into the the world building behind the scenes um and he kind of creates his own theology of it almost and it's uh very reminiscent of a creation story um which is all very very interesting um but then i guess the final big influence on what he wrote i would say is going to be the war itself. Uh, Tolkien was uh, a fighter in the First World War, and he um, he takes a lot of that and writes a lot of it. Um, we especially see that in, for example, how the how the hobbits react to coming home from the war, right? Um, he can kind of I think you can kind of see that as how the hobbits react outside the war, how they hear about these dark things and they kind of put it off, as though those who were at home hearing about the war and then actually getting into it and then coming home and not being able to adjust right you have kind of the three different characters of mary pippin and sam how they all try to adjust their own way and frodo himself is even a bit different too where he can't really adjust he can't settle down he kind of has his ptsd moments right whereas sam he finds his own way to settle down and mary and pippin kind of find their own way to they, they come back changed but not necessarily for the worse but for the better mm-hmm. right um and so that, yeah, we can definitely see some of the themes there. And again, we weren't going to spend too much time on this point. So so I guess we can move on to our second point, do you think? Um, yeah, for sure. My impact today. Thanks for totally taking the first point because I know none of that stuff. <laughs> uh, I learned a fair bit there. Um, also, it goes without saying that uh, if you're listening to this, um, big spoiler alert, but I think that it goes without saying we're going to be getting into a lot of the conclusions because that's where you can you can find the meaning in a lot of these stories yeah. so um everything's going to be spoiled if you haven't watched them <laughs> you're going to be so you're going to be so uh, either lost or upset that we spoiled everything yeah it's, it's been like what 90 years since the books came out and it's been 20 years since the movies came out so i mean so how dare you if yeah. you haven't either read or watched them yeah now that being said any of the stuff that i said that was a bit more biographical or whatever else on the historical end of it if you kind of come across information that's a bit different than mine or conflicting with mine feel free to to share it with us i mean i'm no source of tolkien expert thing this is more um, what i've kind of gathered over the years so if you've come across different information yeah feel free to share it um and with that i think we can move on to the second point which is uh his impact today uh and um, how he's influenced modern fantasy and, well, therefore, contemporary mythology. Um, now, with his impact today um, and his impact after these books coming out, 
it's really hard to measure because there's just so much of it in a broad range of it. Yeah. I mean, this, this, um, I almost revitalizing of old fantasy characters into, um, into the, the modern psyche. That's, um, that's one really big thing. Yeah. Um, especially into the, uh, the minds of the adults, right? Cause mm, yeah. back then it would have been considered childish to consider these things. That's right. Fairy tales. Right. Yeah. No, that's, uh, no, that's definitely the case. I didn't think of that. So, so beyond, beyond the, just, uh, just the fairy tale for, for the children, it's, it's also, um, it's also now got a deeper mythological sense to it. It's got, it's got a world to it now. It's not just, uh, uh, once upon a time, a long time ago in this world. And that's what that's, that indicates. This is, um, no, here's an entirely new world with new structures, with new peoples, um, not not this world a different world mm-hmm. um yeah I, I kind of was marveling at that and i was really scratching my brain to try to figure out if there was anything before tolkien that actually did something that was extra worldly like there were other sorry not extra worldly otherworldly right like, there are writings either around that time or before that time of course that were beyond our world right even norse mythology we see you know the the, the other realms beyond midgard um same thing with you know Greece, you have Olympus, you have Nyx, you have these different areas of um, of existence beyond our world, um, and yeah, but at the same time, Middle Earth doesn't exist in our world at all, and there is no access to our world. So in a sense, it's very different than even these other places. Um, and I'm curious as to see if there was any, like, if anyone else knows of any previous stories that had that existence that didn't connect to our world in any way. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear about it because that was something I was really trying to trying to find and couldn't come across. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I've I've uh, kind of looked for those types of stories, you know, within my own time. Um, I like to read that sort of that, uh, that sort of stuff, but um, I haven't really come across it either. So it really so if Tolkien didn't start it, he definitely popularized it. Yeah, uh, and I think it's pretty safe to say that. Um, and I, I guess we can also just talk about the movies themselves, um, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies by uh, Peter Jackson, mm-hmm. um, how they became such a phenomenon and even increased the popularity of the Lord of the Rings. It was kind of like this perfect storm even, right? Because we're talking like 20 years ago, which movies from 20 years ago don't really hold up to the same quality as movies of today, with the exception of, I would say, Lord of the Rings. Right? Not to say that those movies aren't as good, um, but to say that the quality of even just the, the writing and video, video editing and whatever else, it's just such a phenomenal work of art that has not been, in my opinion, surpassed. Um, and yeah, it's just such a, again, it was a kind of the perfect storm. And in a, in a similar sense, it's actually a uh, very influential. Um, I was actually kind of just um, commenting this to Joel as we were watching um, The Two Towers yesterday. Um, we were looking at Gollum and seeing his, uh, seeing how, how well he was made and, and the, 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 the motion capture, uh, technology that was put behind him was actually, um, one of the things that kind of gave James Cameron the green light to, to go ahead and make something like the Avatar, uh, because he didn't, yeah, their technology for that stuff didn't exist before Gollum, didn't exist before Lord of the Rings. Um, that kind of motion capture of a, of an individual, who was able to be represented on the real screen um, like that. So 
And with it, you. it was yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh well, when you go with Avatar, it's just another fantasy, but with more sci-fi in yeah. it. But it's 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 another fantasy, mm-hmm. fantasy block. Um, also, as you can see, directly inspired by yeah uh, Tolkien's work here. Um, after Peter Jackson. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like I can go on about the, on about the movies forever. Uh, but that's why they have commentaries and stuff like that. So we probably shouldn't go too much. But it does have a huge impact today, right? Because we see certain projects, I think, trying to live up to Lord of the Rings movies, right? Um, we see so every every kind of popular fantasy story now needs to be told on the big screen. Um, since then, Harry Potter, I'd say, is probably one of the more successful ones. Um, and then something like Game of Thrones had been successful until, of course, its very end. Um, that didn't necessarily stay true to the original writing though Um, but then you have something like Aragon which was a horrible (laughs) a horrible representation of the content Um, and something like that just didn't live up and and there's very few fantasy movies we can point to and say no that lives up Um, and none of them have surpassed Lord of the Rings in that sense especially in the fantasy genre in particular Um, I would also say that Lord of the Rings was created in the perfect time they just had the technology to create this very picturesque and artistic and and archaic world in a in a in a modern lens um look to it but also it was created in a time where you could spend a bit more time working on scenes Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be within this certain time limit because um because the the uh, overall attention span was was longer and people were willing to pay a longer, longer attention to to details. Yeah. If you look um, to movies um, uh, 30, 40 years from now, um, they go at greater pains to paint a story, and they really they might uh, make you feel a little bit awkward while you're watching it, but they do sit with you more than I would say the uh, movies do today, because the movies today are. Are very much that present entertainment, mm-hmm. um, and and I think Lord of the Rings really nicely straddles that. Yeah, for sure. But again, we shouldn't get into necessarily too much of the movies. It's not a podcast about the movies. It's just more about the general content. Um, so yeah, I mean, just to kind of see the influence of modern fantasy. I mean, modern fantasy is kind of I'd say owes its description of the genre itself right now to Tolkien. Um, sure, there are others that kind of weight in on that influence but i think he's the kind of the father of modern fantasy um without him we would not have modern fantasy as it is um right and we see that in simple tropes things like elves and, and dwarves is obviously a very um the dwarves and elves that we know as in modern fantasy are from the pages of tolkien not from norse mythology the original content um same thing with uh yeah, like this the whole hero's journey that Tolkien kind of brought into this fantasy thing is now so t- closely tied to the idea of fantasy, whether it be like the chosen the chosen one who's pulled from the farm boy-esque kind of um I mean Alfred it wasn't a farm boy, but my that's kind of that 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 uh, trope um all comes from something like Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that that is uh not to go yeah, I mean we can kind of spend forever on what how how his impact is done today. Um, but I think we should probably get on to the third point, which is going to be on the themes that we see in the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the themes, well, there's plenty of themes. There's all kinds of themes. Yeah. Themes of um, the effects of temptation, um, uh, the corruption 
uh, uh, the corruption of good things by evil, uh, greed, um, watching the the uh, underdog, um, I guess, I guess rise above um, rise above the traditionally powerful, um, but almost in a in a meek way, mm -hmm. not not in a not in a desire to gain power, but uh, in a desire to do good. Right. Um, and then mercy is a uh, is a big one when uh, talking about Gollum. Uh, companionship, uh, I think, is a massive element that's that's in really any anywhere that you find it uh, in the books or, or in the movies. It's really well shown. Uh, if you talk about the the Fellowship of the Ring, the uh, not the book, although in the book, but yep. but the actual the actual Fellowship, um, also the Shire. Uh, very connected people mm -hmm. um the the elves and uh, the people of gondor and and rohan they all have this this really connected community element to it and they're very much each other's people yeah um and finally i i the the self-destruction of evil yeah um and yeah i think uh, i think we can um well, how do we want to start this off with? I... Well, I guess I wanted to kind of give a bit of a, an explanation because some of the things that you hear in contemporary discussions of Tolkien, uh, people will often say that, oh, Tolkien hated allegory. Um, that's often quoted. And it's a bit of a misunderstanding because what we understand as an allegory is not necessarily the same thing that Tolkien understood as allegory, what he hated. Um, right? What we see in, for example, Narnia is a bit more clearly metaphorically you know aslan was jesus christ kind of metaphorically in the realm of narnia um but and so when tolkien says that he hates allegories not that he hates representation of christian themes or or christ-like characters in his work that's not at all what he is referring to what he's referring to in that sense is just this discussion of allegory would be something like um, a point a work of allegory that they would point to as allegory would be um, Pilgrim's Progress, where every single thing in that story points to something in the real life. Um, Tolkien, of course, didn't mean to do that. Even even Lewis didn't do that, right? Um, someone like Mr. Tumnus doesn't represent a specific thing in a Christian walk. Um, and so when Tolkien says that he doesn't like writing allegory, that's exactly what he means. Mm. Um, You're writing the same story in different words. Exactly. Gotcha. So when you point to a theme that you see in his work and it's been influenced by World War, by the World Wars or by uh, by the Bible or by mythology we're not saying that we're not kind of going against tolkien's theme of hating allegory as people like to claim that's certainly not the case um like i just want to point out that misunderstanding before mm -hmm. we get into this discussion of themes because that's very important um because yeah one of the big themes in the story is temptation and i think it's it's not something we see a lot of in our current or at least we're seeing less of it in our current uh our current stuff maybe i'm wrong but I, I i think i think that you're uh, you're on to something because i think that temptation today is sometimes mistaken for desire and mm -hmm. desire being a part of who you are is something that you should you should um capture yeah um so um the the obvious temptations um of of selfish versus caring for someone else or being fair to someone else those those ones still exist today, but not in the deeper sense. Yeah. I find in movies, and like this theme is so very prevalent in all of his work. Um, the, the most obvious example is The Ring, but we're gonna even get in a bit further than that. So we have like The Hobbit, 
um, where the temptation of the gold of the dwarves is what drove Smaug to the mountain. And even after Smaug is defeated, they still have the Arkansone, which is driving Thorin mad. Um, this temptation is driving him insane. Um, and then that same temptation from the dwarves even we see in Moria as they delve too deep into the mines and so they are then struck by this Balrog. It's this, you dive too deep into temptation, you're going to get punished for it. Yeah. Um, and he has this constant theme showing up. And of course the obvious example then is the ring. Um, that's kind of the representation of all temptation really. Um, temptation of power and and uh, it has a very strong sort of theme. And one of the more interesting things as we were discussing this earlier is that it's sometimes temptation can take on a greater good aspect to it where it's not even necessarily selfish, but it's like, I'm doing this for the greater good. So we look at someone like Boromir, who mm. is a perfect representation of what temptation can look like for someone who wants to do good things because Boromir really just wanted to fight against evil he just wanted to save his people but he was still tempted to do one wrong thing in the pathway towards this greater good yeah because you know what's a little evil to do a lot of good mm -hmm. and um I think that's actually another thing um when we're talking about uh Gandalf and Galadriel they had the opportunity uh, to have the ring or even just forcibly take the ring mm -hmm. but that small evil action would would have drove uh, driven them to 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 evil uh, to evil desires and to evil actions um, even if they genuinely wanted to do good with it and if you're if we're getting into it specifically temptation when it sometimes uses that that desire to do good uh, and twists it just just a little bit just mm -hmm. a little bit so i think that this really comes when someone is given the opportunity for a lot of power and he replaces what is good or he at least puts himself as the moderator between what is good and what is evil and he, and he says um well if it's given to me then I can use it as I can use it this way, um, and by virtue of becoming more powerful, I have the potential to be more good. And I think that person, and I think we all do this, we confuse ourselves as a good thing as we get more powerful, um, and and that's that's not the case. We just have more potential for good or evil, mm -hmm. and. Um, it's 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 exactly what Boromir does. He he does genuinely want to save Gondor, and he wants to save um, really the whole world from from Sauron's might. And he actually has the genuinely good desire. The problem is that he replaces he he unconsciously replaces what is good with what is himself. Right. And the chances are, if you're going to do something truly good, it's usually not going to benefit yourself because you're simply not um the best thing yeah um the best thing is above you and it always will be yeah which means that you will necessarily have to be selfless in order to be good yeah. um 
you know, if we look at someone like Gandalf versus Boromir, right? Because Boromir had that, and he kind of recognized that he had the power to take the ring, and um, he decided to go for it. Whereas someone like uh, Gandalf was literally, uh, literally killed himself in a sense to protect the ring bearer, right? Mm-hmm. He he didn't he had more power than Boromir did, arguably. But at the same time, his role in it was so very selfless, right? He was willing to die even for the, uh, yeah, for the for the good of it. Not necessarily, anyway, again, it, it didn't benefit him. It was very selfless. Um, I mean, I guess it did benefit him getting the power up later on, but that's a, a different yeah, discussion. Yeah. But he didn't know, even then, right? It was a very selfless act to to do that whereas someone like Boromir was doing it selfishly as you kind of pointed out mm-hmm. um, and yeah we can kind of talk about the, I guess the discussion of corruption kind of leads right into that um, but one of the because uh, you were saying the corruption of the good and I think the the pinnacle of understanding what the corruption in the story is going to be uh, Saruman yes right he is the the epitome of it because to him it wasn't even necessarily I mean, it was temptation, but I'd almost say it was also losing hope that drove him to corruption. Right? He almost believed that it wasn't possible to beat Sauron, mm-hmm. so then we have to join him. Right? It wasn't even necessary he was tempted by the ring because he didn't even know that the ring was found until Gandalf told him. Um, and so for him, it was more losing hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that corruption ran deep. So very deep that, like, because from what I understand of. I want to kind of briefly um, augment this with saying that I haven't read all of the Cimmerillion um, and a lot of the background stuff. So a lot of the stuff I might know of vaguely, I'm not going to get into too much specifics, but I know that the wizards are practically angels sent down on Middle-earth to overwatch it. Um, And so Saruman's role in this was a good one, but then he ended up becoming corrupt um, to a point where his power had to basically get taken to him, taken from him and given to Gandalf, someone else who could do that role, um, because his role was very um, was was taken over. He 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 lost sight of his role. And you can all uh, you can almost see in his mind. It's once I have solidified my power, then I can start taking care of all this stuff. It's mm-hmm. we have to do some uh, a little bit of bad to do a lot of good. Right. Um, it's it's this replacing himself as the um re- replacing himself um unwarrantedly as the arbiter of good and evil right um and the the selfishness of the action is quite hidden to oneself if if you do that because because you think that you're an emissary of what's good um and then actually if we're if we're continuing to talk about uh, Saruman. Um, one thing that uh, is good to note is that he was Saruman the White, and he starts off as um, this pure, powerful wizard, um, and he grows in increasing power, and he begins to use it for evil. He begins to use it in particular. I think the the most important and most powerful power that he uses, in particular, he uses it to lie. And it's an enchanting lie. Um, and he finally dispenses with his white robes and 
uh, gains these uh, rainbow uh, type yeah. robes that that appear different to whatever perspective you're looking at it from or or whoever you are it's it's purposefully vague right and the reason is because uh, it symbolizes what he's become he lies to each person as an individual at, and he kind of isolates everything and says okay between me and you this is a possibility and by the way it's good to note that it's actually a real possibility it could actually happen with the elimination of all the other people that he's told different lies to right. as well and so it's really tempting because it's it's power but power for potential good and it's and it's free power and he doesn't have to do much he just has to step aside or or do this one little thing mm -hmm. it's it's so enticing and the the problem is from saruman's position if you do that enough times with enough people you can't hold all those promises not as if you were going to hold them uh, by the end anyway but um th these visions are totally incongruous with each other because they're because <laughs> there's only there's only um one true overall vision that he's going to be having right and who cares who it's with um and with that um what's 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 even more interesting is that his tactics don't change even up until the very end when he becomes weak and pathetic after having his broken uh after having his power broken by gandalf um he just doesn't have the enchanting power of the of of the magic lie anymore and they're just yeah. regular lies now and so uh, for those of you who've only seen the movies and haven't seen the books the books end in a very different way um in particular for saruman oh yes well, i kind of just give a brief rundown just in case you've you're just to watch you know just the watcher of the movies and haven't read the books basically um instead of getting killed at Orthanc, as we see in the movies, um, they're left there, and eventually Saruman and Grima Wormtongue end up leaving uh, Orthanc somewhere among the rest of the War of the Ring, and they make their way over to the Shire. And in so doing, corrupt the government of the Shire and take it over. Uh, it isn't until the, uh, the Four Hobbits return and basically fight back against Saruman that we see the end of the story. Mm -hmm. and, and with this... Um... Uh, this this brings on to to, to the, this is actually fantastic because it brings on to the point I was getting to, which is um, he, with this significant loss of power and now that his power is very much only physically m manipulated, yeah, um, he overestimates himself completely. His vision of who he is and what the world is are so incongruous that he makes ridiculous tactical errors. And he becomes probably the most pathetic being beside Wormtongue. Like they're they're very pathetic by the end of it. Right. And Saruman completely loses to a bunch of hobbits. Um, and um, he still thinking that he has this kind of power over uh, Wormtongue. I puts too much pressure on him um, to to follow him and basically be his slave. And Wormtongue, who's just and and truly desperately had enough of it um even after being given the offer by the hobbits to um to be free um because by the way he doesn't believe it because he's lived around lies his whole life and uh, and maybe to a degree he still believes in the power of saruman um 
even after all that, he desperately kills Saruman and he runs off to his own death. Right. And um, it's it's really it's really a lesson in how lies don't only cloud the vision of um, of the person who is being lied to, but it clouds the vision of um, of the perpetrator as well, of the person who tells lies as well, right. and certainly too many. Right. Um, one of the uh, and I kind of I kind of want to jump ahead here because we kind of we touched on some other things, but the one I actually want to touch on here because it definitely relates to um, Saruman and Gandalf is companionship, um, and I, I don't know if it's an intentional theme in his work, so I'm only going to touch on it briefly. But I wonder if there's a potential theme in when we read about Saruman and Gandalf, and we read about the other wizards as well. We read about Radagast and the two blues which are very lightly mentioned um all of them kind of lose their path with the exception of gandalf um and the of the other two that we do know of so radagast and saruman even like i said radagast doesn't seem to go evil he's not evil but he kind of loses his path and he's kind of just doesn't really live up to the role that he's been given either um but i wonder if again might have been unintentional might have been intentional I wonder if part of that reasoning is because someone even as powerful as Gandalf or Saruman or Radagast needs to have companionship. Mm Because -hmm. um, as we go through the story, we, come, we run across all these individuals who have been touched by Gandalf or who have been known by Gandalf, right? The hobbits all deeply mourn him when he dies because he has often been a regular visit and loved, beloved by the hobbits. At the same time, we come across Faramir, who is you know, a disciple of Gandalf was a wizard's pupil um and there was this uh, people in gondor knew him as mithrandir a completely different name than people in the shire would have known him he is known by so very many different people all across middle earth um sometimes even deeply he has deep friendships with aragorn and and uh whatnot and again he is even he knew so very many different people and yet we look at someone like saruman who at one point walked with treebeard in Fangorn Forest, but eventually kind of isolated himself. Mm -hmm. Right? Even if he had, let's say, Wormtongue at some points during his his parts there, he never treated him as an equal, never spoke to him in any sort of compassionate way, but more of a subservient way. Um, and then the same thing with Radagast. Didn't engage with people. He was more just a bit odd because he engaged with wildlife and that was it. And so I wonder if there's this subtle theme of companionship is what keeps us on the right path. Well, you're also touching on another thing, like um, Gandalf treats um, treats the people around him as in soul, not in power, um, but in soul equal. Mm -hmm. They're all they're all intelligent life, and they're um, and they care as well. And their their care for him equals his care for for them. And and it's th there's there's this. Um, emotional reciprocation and he knows where he is in the world as well because he's he's constantly um he's constantly talking with different people and mm. um uh and enjoying their companionship um and he's doing and he's staying true to his mission which is to protect and keep an eye on on uh, this this rather uh powerful world right um and and Saruman, I uh, not only I I think Treebeard t 
touches on this really well and he says that his mind has become a mind of machines and wheels um, mm-hmm. and and has lost that um, compassion of life because Saruman has kind of seen himself supersede life right and um, so once once you're over top of something then you sometimes mistake being over top of something uh, as understanding it in its entirety but there's there's a lot of ways that that things are greater than you even though you might have power over it and one of them would be um that that compassionate and um loving companionship yeah and the next the the next um theme that we actually had on the list here is the underdog Um, but this kind of still talks about gandalf and saruman um insofar as they view the world Right, Saruman believes that it comes that to fight evil you need to have great power. Whereas Gandalf kind of puts his trust in in smaller things, right? When the dwarves ask Gandalf to to find someone to help them take over the mountain from a dragon, he doesn't come up with a mighty warrior. And he knows Aragorn, and he knows Beor, and he knows a number of people who probably could have qualified a bit better, but he picks Bilbo. Um, and I think part of the reason he picks Bilbo is because Bilbo needs it, for one thing. But I think he also trusts in... He kind of trusts in this greater power of guiding the small and weak. And trusting in that will end up um, winning the day. Right? Yeah, actually, you're exactly right in that. The, the way that he, um, that he works is not by... It's it's in those times of peril that he that he makes sure that these powerful people um, are all together fighting evil and mm-hmm. doing their responsibility. But it's not an issue of responsibility when we're looking at the Hobbit. This is a this is an issue of growth, um, and you don't just give that to an experienced guy who's already gone through all of that because you know what's the point? You know you win the mission and maybe these dwarves grow. Up that's that's fine for them but what about this guy what's the point you put someone there who hasn't had who hasn't had the opportunity and you give him a chance to grow and that's exactly what Gandalf does um, and it comes from it comes from this uh, this uh, from a compassionate place ironically as well I also think that Gandalf is properly depicted as a little bit insane as well <laughs> yeah. um because because the older and the wiser are also the more foolish as well yeah seen um, almost right yeah um, um the the fool and the and the wise men are are not opposites in yeah. um in any kind of uh mythology yeah but let's not be yeah let's not be fooled to think that like this is a deeply christian message um the, the message of the underdog is very deeply christian um Right, like we look at Greek mythology, which is very pagan, and oh, even Norse yeah. mythology. There's no underdog message there. It's all being the best. If and you've probably <laughs> heard um, the story of Achilles and Troy, and mm-hmm. Achilles is just the best. There's, there's, um, like he does bad things, sure, but it's yeah. like he's who phys- cares? he's physically the best, right? Who, yeah. who cares? Because everything that he does, like he weeps big, he yeah. laughs big, and he, um, and he fights an army big like he he does um he does everything that he does is just to the extreme the best yeah uh and but but 
what Alex is touching on right here is um, it's the it's the meek, humble hero who has been unwillingly given um, given a burden to to overcome that um, that in a very Christ-like way uh, succeeds and and delivers yeah. uh, delivers the people. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because uh, I've heard it kind of demonstrated before in the Christian perspective is that like Satan's greatest sin, his greatest down or his greatest thing that he did that was evil was pride because he wanted God's power. And the way that God beat him wasn't with great power. It was literally by taking away that power from himself to beat him. It's kind of this ironic move on God's part where um yeah, he kind of showed Satan that that power while of course awesome and wonderful, wasn't necess- wasn't even necessary for beating Satan. And I kind of find this ironic. Um, and so at the same time, you see that where um, that thought doesn't even cross Sauron's mind in the, in the in Lord of the Rings that that someone like a Hobbit, so humble and meek and and small, would even be would even be capable of something like that. And so that's why he has no defenses for it, right? You think that if you know if you think that there was one place where you could destroy the ring you'd have a battalion of guards standing at the gate there um, but to him the, the thought that they even tried to destroy the ring first of all didn't even cross his mind and even if they did there's no way he would have suspected a hobbit doing it because why would you send a hobbit into that kind of thing right in Sauron's mind he kind of has the same mind as Saruman in that it's they're going to strike with great power and that's why they even the, the, the little coup at the end where Aragorn approaches the uh, the Black Gate with his army and with Gandalf, it distracts him because it's it's a, to his mind that is how he loses yeah. is by great power. This great king and this great wizard show up at his gate, and it's this final conflict that's going to decide it. Meanwhile, we have these tiny little hobbits going into the back door and throwing the ring in the fire. Well, they don't, but that's a different. Uh, that's actually I think kind of touches yeah. on to our next point. Well, that's the next <laughs> point. It's evil ironically overthrows itself well okay so my the next point was mercy but i'm also going to touch that with because it's actually the same theme kind of um no i think that you can (laughs) put the two together though because um because with it's it's not ultimately the hobbits who who um who are throwing it uh, into mount doom because um you know frodo by the end of it is just not capable of that anymore Mm -hmm. he's been um he's been holding on to this evil for too long um No matter what moral efforts he's put in, this this power is is too much. Yeah. And that's that's what I love love about how Tolkien does is because any other writer I would think wouldn't have been able to put in this message to the same degree. Because you mm-hmm. finally get to the end, this very climactic thing, and you throw the ring in, yeah, la di da, you're done. They would have been so tempted, right? Just to to make the hero the hero exactly as it usually yeah. is done. But instead, he shows. First of all, that it's evil that throws itself in, and it was actually the simple acts of mercy that led up to that point. Mm. Um, so one of the very first times we hear about that, right, when when Gollum is kind of being discussed between Frodo and Gandalf in the Shire in uh, Fellowship, um, Frodo kind of makes a snide comment about saying, "Oh, it's it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance," and then Gandalf kind of points out, he says, "Wait a minute, it was actually pity that made sure that Bilbo didn't do that." Because the mercy of Bilbo, I think, is going to have a larger part to play in all this. Later on, we see the same mercy being showed by Frodo as he takes pity on Smeagol 
um, especially when we see him uh, in the pool. I forget what the, the name of the pool. It's like the sacred pool that any trespassers have to be killed by. And then Faramir has this trap set. Um, and they're about to kill Gollum, and Frodo kind of says no. Uh, he has this perfect opportunity to, to end Gollum's life, and he takes pity on him and doesn't do it. And by the way, even better, it wouldn't have been his fault. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been Gollum's fault. Yeah. And you know. Yeah, it would have been perfectly just, but he took mercy on, um, to save his life, mm-hmm. and it's that act of mercy, that ultimately leads to, the overcoming of evil. But at the same time, and it's kind of ironic because it's not as though that act of mercy directly leads to the overcoming of evil, but it indirectly through evil is then what it is, kind of throws that evil off course in a, in a weird way. Because it's still the draw of the ring that leads Gollum to wrestling with Frodo over the, 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 pits, over the pit of Mount Doom um, that throws the ring in. Yeah. Um, and Gollum is not... Well, he's he's not happy with being seemingly betrayed by Frodo, which it kind of is that like Frodo does lead him into the trap, mm-hmm. um, but that is to save his life. And um, I, Alex and I were talking about this beforehand, and he pointed out that this is almost th- that there's almost a small lesson here. It, not almost, there is a small lesson here, and it's that. Um, that's a it's, y- it's misunderstanding. You, can, you yeah. can explain it better it's kind of like a misunderstanding of discipline right mm-hmm. you, you look at the the bad consequences of discipline without realizing what you've been saved from um right when uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a big theme in that moment but i think it's a nice thing to kind of look at right where you go through something that's tough or or maybe you go through um or maybe you're getting disciplined say even just by your parents um that it, it's saving you from something worse Right, and you may not even see it because Gollum didn't see it. He didn't mm-hmm. see the arrows being pointed at him in the dark, but but Frodo's act of mercy still led to pain. Uh, the men ended up beating Gollum, um, which wasn't great, but it was better than being shot in the dark. Um, but he didn't know that. And ultimately, Gollum's survival by maybe at least three but probably more instances of pity because there's a few times that sam and rather justifiably so i would say i sam argues that um frodo should just kill uh gollum right right here right now Mm -hmm. but there's at least three instances where pity stays uh stays the hand of either frodo or uh or bilbo um uh, to killing gollum and it's and there was any one of these instances could have meant the death of Gollum, but because of this pity and and this mercy, and um, and it, because Gollum survives through this, in uh, in a twisted but kind of um, kind of providential way, yeah, it it turns out um, that that Gollum's survival is the one thing that overthrows. And that that overthrows the ring that destroys the ring yeah because frodo can't throw the ring on his own into yeah, mount doom in his own and power it, he's he's completely powerless to it and it took the i uh, dis well <laughs> the rings exerting power over both frodo and over Gollum, and it's and the ring wants these two to fight to fight because the ring being the embodiment of evil is naturally divisive mm-hmm. and so um it takes this 
fight between two participants who don't want the ring to be destroyed. It takes this fight to um, for for the ring to accidentally fall into the, fall into the fire of Mount Doom, and the ring seals its own fate. It mm-hmm. it overthrows itself, and this is another very Christian theme yeah. that um, Satan defeats himself by influence uh, by by influencing um, the the events so that he can kill God. Yeah. But yeah, putting Christ on the cross was the absolute nail in the coffin, as it were, for Satan. But for him, it was his moment of triumph, right, from his perspective. Yeah. But from you know hindsight, it was his moment of defeat. Um, and so yeah, it's this kind of moment when Sauron thinks he's won because he's corrupted Frodo, but right, he thinks that there's this failsafe. But ironically, the failsafe kind of kicks in for both, and it kind of has this lie that kind of works. It's two lies that don't work together. Um, but there was another, one more thing that I wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, there's this ironic thing too. Another ironic thing I want to point out, um, because they so Bilbo and Frodo are not the only ones who end up letting Gollum live. It was one other person that does as well, but his motives were very different. Now Sauron. That's true. So the, before the before the, uh, outside the events of what we read about specifically in the book, we read about how Gollum was taken captive in Mordor and tortured for the information about the ring. But then, later on, it's talked about how he escaped, and Gandalf kind of muses to himself and says, escaped, or was he set loose? As if Sauron had instead the intention, not mercy, but of maybe using this corrupted creature for his own ends. Mm-hmm. And and yet, so there's the same, same action of sparing his life, completely different motive, and yet it leads to the downfall of Sauron. I think that's actually... Again, there's an ironic sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, it implodes on himself because he used it for himself yeah. once again. Exactly. Um, and if... Oh, there was... There there was the... That's right. Um, so I actually really want to hammer this in because it's the... Because lies don't work together. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're used to thinking of truth. People just in general are used to thinking of truth versus the lie. Um, as as two different things, it's there. There's one truth, but there are many lies, and many lies also conflict with each other. Right. They're not. They they they're constantly disagreeing with each other, and that's why you know, <laughs> Saruman who tells all these different lies to to everyone, they don't work together. None of these visions work together nobody's going to win except for maybe Saruman, but, you know, he doesn't because the two lies at the end conflict and yeah. and it brings down the ring. The lie of power um, for, for Gollum and the lie of power for Frodo, those two lies bring the ring down. Yeah. And it's, it's self-destructive and um, it takes away all the all the great connections and elements um and yeah i i think that that's really i think that's really the ultimate point of the story yeah uh, yeah i mean another like, I, I think i want to touch on companionship too because we don't get anywhere without the companionship motif mm-hmm. um because that's uh, i think another huge theme in the book and we, we definitely talked about a little bit of insight of like whether or not the wizards kind of fell away from their task because of lack of companionship 
But I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the companionship that develops between a lot of individuals in the story, whether it be the actual fellowship, which is a very important thing, but then we have specific companions being closer, drawn closer and closer together. The most obvious and prevalent example is Frodo and Sam, but we even see that showing up in Gandalf and uh, sorry, Gandalf, uh, Legolas and Gimli, who by all rights should hate each other. Their fathers were literally one had thrown the other father in prison and hated each other for that specific reason, and yet these two were able to kind of become Best very, friends. very close friends. Exactly, yeah. um, and even like, like we see Merry and Pippin as well, their companionship leading to a lot of events that, <laughs> quite frankly, changed the course of the world. Um, and I think that is another massive theme that Tolkien really drives home. It's not subtle at all, um, and I think it's very important. Um, and again, another very Christian message. Uh, we read in the end of the book of Ecclesiastes where uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken, um, and that if a man should fall down alone, that he is in dire straits, but if should he fall down with a brother beside him, he's able to help him pick him back up. Um, and, there's, and the basic theme in Genesis that it's not good that man is alone. Um, we see this theme time and time again. Um, I was even pointing out to, uh, to Joel how Every single time, people think that Frodo was meant to do this task alone. He, even he thought he was supposed to do this alone, right? Like, he sits there and ponders, he's like, I know I need to do this alone. I need to leave everyone else, especially after the corruption of Boromir. I can't let that happen to anyone else. And Aragorn kind of agrees with him. He says, hey, yeah, you should probably do this on your own. Later on, Gandalf reflects to Aragorn. He says, oh, I've heard, you know, I understand that Frodo had to do this alone. And yet, he didn't. <laughs> he had Sam with him the whole time. Um, Sam disagreed with Frodo very very importantly on that and and then when Aragorn pointed out to Gandalf later on he says no no there's uh Sam went with him and he says oh actually that's better (laughs) better than I thought um right because we're so tempted I think often to look at our lives as if we were an island yeah right we we think every task that we have to do is going to throw other people under the bus it's going to hurt them we have to carry our own burdens we have to make sure that no one else gets caught up in the troubles of our lives. but And these aren't things that are necessarily um, false. A lot of these things are true. But there's a greater perspective. Um, and we share each other's burdens. Um, and through that, we find comfort both for ourselves and for the other person um, in helping each other out. There's a lot of joy in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and undertaking suffering with someone. Yeah. Um, and and very purposefully and voluntarily there's there's a lot of comfort in it and because there's a heroic element in it because you know it's good um, and it gives you peace mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm perfectly convinced to sit here and say that Frodo would have turned into Gollum very quickly if Sam hadn't been there yeah right um, how, how grounded does Sam keep Frodo and we see that, right? Like you said, like being with each other when we suffer, right? We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And that is a very important thing to do with each other. Um, and like I said, I think that is one of the main themes of the book. And I'd say, you say it's the, it's the distinction between um, the, the lies that don't line up and the truth, which is a good theme. And I think that's definitely there. Um, my, my suggestion for the, for the main theme would be companionship. But I think that's... Uh, hmm perhaps a different uh yeah i mean what do you guys think do you think that there's I mean, obviously there's so many themes to the book 
but do you guys have one that's kind of your favorite theme or one that you think is kind of the most relevant or most powerful theme in the book if so feel free to share with us we're always open for that discussion um the thing with Tolkien is that we can literally go on for hours yeah. <laughs> we've gone on for quite some time now already so we're going to kind of wrap it up here yeah. um yeah i think next week we're looking into what c.s lewis and uh tolkien or sorry not tolkien c.s lewis and uh and rowling right we were going to yeah. be doing although i don't know if uh, we should do that in separate episodes or not you'll you'll <laughs> see whether we have that in separate episodes or yeah. if we yeah. or if we have it together um but yeah it's it's been a lot of fun and uh I suspect that we will do more episodes on this in the future and get into the specifics of this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it might be a long way off. <laughs> there is so much to cover. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, yeah. we'll see you later. Yeah. See ya.